The ultimate authority in the universe, I won't go into a lot of detail, we could preach a whole message just on this, but the ultimate authority in the universe is actually truth. It's one of the reasons why the Trinity continues to get along. Uh, many times we think that how can two people get along all the time? Uh, because those of us in marriage relationships recognize there are times when there may be some disunity here and there. But whenever there's a third, it's always disunity, but it seems, but it doesn't need to be that way if the Trinity is not based on an authority figure that, that just sets the, the rules and then everyone else follows. Uh, the reason why the Trinity gets along is because they make their decisions totally based on truth. And they come together and say, what is the truth? And that's how we're supposed to be making our decisions. When we get into a court of law, even in this nation, the reason why our court system is as good as it is, is because that decision is to be based solely and completely on truth. Not on who we want to come out on top, who we want to win, uh, what our emotional desires are, who we might have affections are, but it is to be based on truth. And that's why witnesses are called to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. However, there can be corruption even in the court system uh, when uh, truth is tampered with or uh, deceptions uh, come in. And uh, in the courtroom, it's particularly uh, uh, worrisome when the people asking you the questions have not taken the same oath that the witnesses have. Uh, and, uh, and so in the questions, uh, sometimes uh, there can be uh, the element of, uh, of deception that comes in. But truth is to be the ultimate authority. And whenever we're making decisions, there are opportunities for deceptions to come in. Uh, God the Father is the God of truth. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And that's how he actually comforts our emotions. New Testament and Old Testament both state that there's something God cannot do, and that is tell a lie. Now, he's a free moral agent just like we are. He could if he wanted to, but he puts truth above himself. That's one of the reasons, one of the foundational reasons for truth being the ultimate authority. And it's also the reason why Christ came to this world. When the crown of thorns was upon him, and he was there in front of the individual that had the power over his life or death. And that individual was asking him why he was there. He said, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And that's the ultimate reason why he came. Yes, he came to, dis to save us as well. Sorry for that number four up there. That turns out to be the fourth cognitive distortion. And so we want to uh, uh, be as sure that we're not uh, distorting truth. And uh, one of the things, one of the ways in which we, um, uh, it affects our motivation more so than any other is when we start disqualifying the positive. Uh, and uh, there are ways in which this, uh, this can be done in the mental health arena, uh, but it does result in lack of motivation. And it's kind of interesting, we're having seminars here to try to help us see the motivation to do certain things and the motivation of particularly to win souls, et cetera. 
But uh, it's kind of uh, last uh, Monday, uh, we finished a peak mental performance program in Ardmore, Oklahoma, uh, among those that had come in from afar. And then that Monday night, we finished the banquet for the, uh, an outpatient depression recovery program that we were doing there in Ardmore. And one of the participants uh, that was coming was a uh, pastor from another district. And uh, he saw the tremendous results. In fact, we have out of that uh, group of 22 uh, uh, individuals, uh, 15 and it's growing, are going to be uh, coming to a Bible study that we're holding Monday night at our house uh, on Daniel. And so uh, many of these individuals who weren't even interested in spiritual things are, are awakened from that. In fact, uh, it's kind of interesting to see the transition that's taken place there. But in disqualifying the positive, it sounds rewarding, but I know there are so many struggles accompanying those who try to put on a depression recovery program that I'll be absolutely overwhelmed. That's what he stated. And, uh, and so he could see the positive results, but yet thought he would be overwhelmed. And in regards to that, uh, as I talked to him, he, I realized that many of his thoughts of being overwhelmed were totally based on things that just weren't true and were distorted. And once he realized the truth, then all of a sudden the motivation came in and he was not as tempted to disqualify the positive. Saul disqual disqualified the positive repeatedly in regards to David. Nabal did it as well. There are many scriptural examples of those who disqualified the positive, but here are some of the solutions to it. Obstacles are those frightful things you see when you take your eyes off your goal. So building on the cause, uh, for those of you who are here this morning, uh, the cause should be a very motivating cause. But uh, when we take our eyes off the goal, then the obstacles seem much bigger. Henry Ford says, think you can, think you can't. Either way, you'll be right. Thomas Fuller said, he does not believe who does not live according to his belief. If we truly believe, we won't disqualify the positive. Anne Frank says, I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. Lee Salk, when it gets dark enough, you can see the stars. David Schwartz, we can turn setbacks into victories, find the lesson, apply it, and move on, then look back on defeat and smile. Determine that the thing can and shall be done, and then we shall find the way. Abraham Lincoln. So if we are truly determined that the cause should go forward, then we won't disqualify the positive. And that brings me to the Zurich axiom. Optimism means expecting the best. We want to be optimistic, but not just optimistic. Confidence means knowing how to handle the worst. And the axiom says, never make a move if you're merely optimistic. And so we need to always weigh benefits versus risks as well, just like we do in medicine in many ways. Another obstacle to making the right decision is another cognitive distortion called jumping to conclusions. It's actually the type of exercise that most Americans get. Uh, and uh, it's not physical exercise, it's a mental exercise. But uh, often there is a, uh, a desire uh, that's there to just take things at their face value and what we can see very obviously and not look deeper. And thus we can make the wrong decisions. Jumping to conclusions is easier than gathering all the facts. And one author stated, 
Stephen Wright, a conclusion is what you come to when you are tired of thinking about something. Another distortion, uh, fortune teller error. This is where we often presume that if we do this, then that will happen. How good are human beings at telling the future? Very poor. Even those who are paid lots of money to tell the future are very poor. Did you realize out of the 1,500 mutual funds, only one of them has made money this past year? Uh, and these are 1,500 people that were trained at Harvard and Yale and some of our most prestigious uh, business uh, centers and are in the charge of billions of dollars. The one individual that made money, he had a very small fund. He was only managing $300 million. And everyone ridiculed him at how he was doing his mutual fund because in 2006 he got rid of every bank stock, he got rid of every financial, anything that had to do with finances because he saw it coming. And you know, after 2006, those things started to go up and he was deeply ridiculed by the majority of the experts out there, really all of the experts. This year, he's made, his mutual fund has made 11%. And he's no longer being ridiculed. In fact, he's being worshiped. Uh, and, uh, and so it is, when we do what is right because it is right and leave the consequences to God, uh, often what is predicted by the many experts out there that will happen doesn't happen and the opposite can occur. Can't move to Weimar, won't be able to fund my kids' education, we'll lose our family's health insurance. Another fortune teller error, I will never be able to overcome this problem. Many people have this and thus it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and. Uh, Abraham had the fortune teller error. What was his fortune teller error? Do you remember? Yeah, he thought that if the king of Egypt knew the full truth, uh, that uh, he would be killed. And so he decided not to tell the whole truth. And uh, was he right about that? Would he have been killed? Absolutely not. Did he cause dishonor to God's name? Absolutely. Uh, and so many times we sit there and finagle and those type of things in regards to fortune teller errors and not leave the consequences with God. Another inhibiting point is emotional reasoning. This may be the most common distortion that comes in when people make decisions. Emotional reasoning in the psychological sense goes like this, I feel like a dud, therefore I am a dud. I feel overwhelmed and helpless, thus my problems are impossible to solve. I'm angry at you and that proves that you've been cruel and insensitive to me because I'm angry at you. And so we end up uh, uh, doing lots of things just based on emotions. Uh, you know, Samson did that in regards to his marriage partner. She pleaseth me well. In other words, she was beautiful, attractive personality, made him feel good all over. And so what could be wrong with that? How long did that marriage last when he said that? I think it was a week, that one. Uh, and so uh, emotional reasoning can get us into a lot of trouble. 
James 1 says, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own evil feelings. The problems are that feelings can lie. And so we have to elevate our feelings to the level of our consciousness, our frontal lobe. The Lord wants us to analyze those feelings. One of my big decisions in life had to do with marriage. This is counsel from Ellen White. And in fact, she says this is the area that tends to be the strongest area for emotional reasoning. And for those who have that positive chemistry, you know, there's been studies on that. I give talks about marriage. We have a, uh, a school, uh, a small school that we conduct there in Ardmore, Oklahoma, uh, or help conduct the School of Health Integrating Natural Remedies with Evangelism. It's called SHINE. And uh, the uh, people who come to that as students are single individuals. And so I'm always asked to give the, the, the talk in regards to preparation for a happy marriage. But I go through some of the physiology, you know, some of the love chemicals that have now been shown to be out there. Do you know how long those love chemicals last uh, when you have that chemistry in a relationship? Average length of time, 18 months. Longest length of time they've ever lasted is four years. Uh, and a lot of times it's only six months. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that you're, you can't uh, love your mate beyond the time when those uh, transient love chemicals are, uh, are manifesting themselves. PCP is one of them. Uh, phenylethylamine is another. But it is, um, uh, it is a, a strong tendency for emotional reasoning. Marriage is something that will influence and affect your life both in this world and the world to come. A sincere Christian will not advance his plans in this direction without the knowledge that God approves his course. I would not be understood to mean that anyone is to marry one whom he does not love. This would be sin, but fancy and the emotional nature must not be allowed to lead on to ruin. God requires the whole heart, the supreme affections. And so God comes first, even in regards to decisions such as this. Jonathan Martinson said, feelings are much like waves. We can't stop them from coming, but we can choose which one to serve. <laughs> Speaking of emotional reasoning, Ellen White says, if you would know the mystery of godliness, you must follow the plain word of truth, feeling or no feeling, emotion or no emotion. Obedience must be rendered from a sense of what? principle and the right must be pursued under all circumstances. Now she goes on to explain that, but the point is that whether there is a feeling or not, we must follow the truth. Then in regards to giving, she also states something. Many people are emotional givers. Did you know that? To give or to labor when our sympathies are moved and to withhold our gifts or service when the emotions are not stirred is an unwise and dangerous course. If we are controlled by impulse or mere human sympathy, then a few instances where our efforts for others are repaid with ingratitude or where our gifts are abused or squandered will be sufficient to freeze up the springs of beneficence. Christians should act from fixed principle, following the Savior's example of self-denial and self-sacrifice. And so this is why giving patterns tend to go up and then go down, uh, often due to emotional reasoning. One of the biggest areas of emotional reasoning is confusing needs with wants. And with emotional reasoning, we kind of convince ourselves that we need something, uh, such as that health insurance or whatever. 
Uh, and what is it that human beings truly need? What is it that we truly need? You know, when it gets down to it, we need air, we need water, at least after a day or two or three, we need sufficient food, and we also need sufficient warmth. As far as needs are concerned, uh, there may be a few other things you'd like to put up there, but there may be some things where we need to analyze that. I mean, often we even say we need sufficient shelter. I mean, did Christ have that? I mean, did he have a roof to go to every night? Uh, you know, if that was a need, uh, then, uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't a need. Uh, and so uh, it, uh, when, we, when we start realizing what is truly a need and what is truly a want, it can really help us with decisions. Many people have a, quote, need to have a certain appearance. That's not a need. It's a want. Have things go our way is not a need. It's a want. Have an outstanding job. It's a want. It's not a need. To be liked by everybody uh, certainly is not a need. It's a want. To have a beautiful home is also a want. And so we really need to analyze things in regards to needs versus wants. Another aspect that tends to be a distortion, this one really falls under the category of magnification, uh, where we tend to get things out of proportion. But confusing relying with depending. Here's the definition of relying. To rely on someone is to trust they will do something that you could do yourself or that you could find other means of doing it. And often we uh, believe that we're depending on others and that we're a dependence. In reality, it's more of a reliance. To depend on someone is to count on a person to do something that you cannot do yourself or find other means of having it done. And the big priority here is to recognize that we depend on God. We are dependent on God for every breath that we take. We rely on others, and that's why Christ made it so very clear that the ones that were worthy of him are ones who recognize that fact. Even our own immediate household, uh, we tend uh, to think that we're dependent, but in reality, it's reliance in comparison with the ultimate dependence, which is on God. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference is a good thing to keep in mind when we're making decisions. I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgment have I laid before me, Psalms 119.30. And so getting back to truth. And of course, some of the things make it easy decisions. You know, I've heard people say after being introduced to the Sabbath truth, you know, I really need to go home and pray about this to see whether the Lord wants me to keep the Sabbath. What would be your advice if someone said that to you? I've heard people respond right back and say, well, that's, that's a good thing to do. You, you really need to pray about that. But, you know, if you, have any, uh, if you start to develop an emotional attachment uh, with, uh, with someone in the hospital setting who's a member of an opposite sex, what would it sound like to have someone say, you know, I really need to go home and pray about this to see if the Lord wants me to dump my wife and marry this one. You know, I need to subject this to prayer. 
uh, you know, in reality, it's clear. The Lord's, when the Lord has spoken in clear terms, we don't need to contemplate on it. We don't even need to pray about it. We just need to follow it <laughs> and do the will of the Lord. And when the Lord says to keep the Sabbath holy, uh, and that's an eternal law, uh, there should be no prayer needed. The prayer should, the only prayer should be to give me the power and strength to follow it no matter what comes. And so uh, some decisions are fairly easy. They're based on truth, but then sometimes it's hard to actually find the truth. And that's where it comes to emotional intelligence can be improved. Christ said, ye shall know the truth, and that means an intimate association with it, not just a knowledge of. That's the word that's being utilized there. Just like Adam knew Eve and Eve conceived, it's an intimate association. Ye shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. And so truth needs to be paramount in making decisions. And another thing that needs to be paramount is also love. The Bible says, therefore, love the truth. I just looked this morning to see which texts have both of them in there, Zechariah 8:19. Uh, and so there's many aspects of love. Ephesians says, speak the truth, how? In love. May grow up into him in all Christ, which is the head. Second Thessalonians tells us what will happen when we don't have the truth there with all deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they received not the what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion. They should believe a lie. And so if you don't love the truth, eventually you are going to believe a lie and be led astray. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us how to get at the ultimate love, which is agape love. Uh, well, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2 tells us that. Let me go to 1 Peter 1 first. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And that love that's being exemplified is agape love. Uh, which is that self-sacrificing love. You know, uh, in the last year, there was, I think it was about two years ago now, there's a Canadian study that took a look at those who exemplified agape. Now, agape, uh, they don't talk about agape in the medical literature. What they talk about are acts of altruism. Uh, and so uh, that's the term that you would need to look up, altruism. Those who uh, have significant acts of altruism, in this case it was more than seven per week, compared with those who had less acts of altruism per week, which group do you think was happier? The group that was self-sacrificing or the group that was not self-sacrificing? Actually, those undergoing at least seven acts of altruism a week were significantly happier and more satisfied with their life than those who were living for themselves, uh, primarily. And so it doesn't, you know, some of these things are paradoxical. We think uh, that uh, to live for ourself is going to benefit self, but in reality, when we do that, we end up not benefiting self. Uh, and so uh, the question is, how can we get to that top rung of the ladder as far as love is concerned? By the way, Dr. Prochaska, uh, looked at love, agape love, in another way. He uh, called it empathy. Uh, and he found out that that was the greatest change agent. If you're a physician or a dentist, 
and you're wanting to help change the lifestyle of the individual in front of you, the attribute that's most likely attributed to lifestyle change after they have the knowledge that they need to change, there are some things that come before that. But once people recognize their need to change and the desire to change, uh, the greatest attribute of the caregiver in helping to produce that change is empathy uh, or agape. And so uh, empathy is an important uh, change agent uh, as well. And the psychological literature talks about, uh, Prochaska talks about six stages of change. It's really boiled down to four when you take a look at it from the psychological literature. The first stage is to be unconsciously incompetent. That means you don't realize your need of change and you think you're living a pretty good life. And a lot of people in stage one are living a, a, a appearance of a happy life because ignorance is bliss. The problem is it's only blissful for so long and eventually it catches up with the individual and they end up suffering in many ways that they have no control over. Stage two is to become consciously incompetent. Uh, what do you need to go from stage one to stage two? Knowledge. And the Bible says my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So we need knowledge. It has to be good knowledge to move us that way. Number three is to become consciously competent. And uh, that's when we actually put it into practice. And uh, my, uh, the clinical psychologist we use a lot in depression recovery, Kelly Dulac, tells her own story when she got rid of uh, when she felt her need, first of all, she had to get educated. Uh, she was a great Pepsi drinker, and she was having irritability, reflux, other issues, and she happened to read some material on caffeine, recognized what was happening, and that it was probably adversely affecting her, and she decided that she was going to change. As a result of going to stage three now, whenever she got thirsty, what did you think she thought of? She didn't think of water, she thought of Pepsi because she was consciously competent, and then she'd say, no, not Pepsi, I'm gonna drink water. Next time she got thirsty, what do you think she thought of? Pepsi, she said, nope, not Pepsi, water. Now eventually, after she did that, many times, took about several weeks in her instance, I think three to four weeks, she went to stage four, and now when she was thirsty, what do you think she thought of? Water. She was benefiting from it, her irritability went away, her reflux went away, and that's where the Bible says at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. A lot of people, they keep going back and forth between stage two and three, and they never realize there's a, a beautiful stage four out there. Peter talks about those same stages in regards to getting to agape love, but he expands on them. Before we get to his expansion, I want you to understand, first of all, that he wasn't there after he became converted. Peter was converted after uh, Christ um, gave him that look after he had denied his Lord. And he went back to Gethsemane, and his heart was broken, and he was totally converted. And after that point... Uh, Christ had the opportunity to meet up with him. And uh, Peter, Christ asked him some questions. When they dined, this is John, the last chapter of John. When they dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, agape thou me more than these. He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. 
He saith to him the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, agape thou me. He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest I phileo thee. Phileo, of course, is another word for love. It's translated love uh, both places, and it's a, uh, it's a word that also meant love in a sense in Greek. But phileo is a brotherly love. It's a, uh, there are feelings associated with, uh, with phileo as well. Uh, agape is a, um, is a total self-sacrificing love where people do acts for others with no potential benefit to themselves whatsoever. They're not even thinking about that. Uh, but he said, Thou knowest I phileo thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time. And now Christ changes the word in mercy to Peter. Simon, son of Jonas, phileo thou me. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest, I knowest, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I phileo thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Why wouldn't Peter use the word agape back to Christ? He knew he wasn't there yet. And he also, uh, uh, later on, he talks about how he agaped in Second Peter. So he, he eventually reached the top rung of the ladder. It wasn't that he was trying to uh, just say out of, out of self he couldn't do it, although that would have been partially true. But he knew he wasn't there yet. He didn't have that agape. And then later on he tells us how to get to agape, and he tells us the steps. Giving all diligence, add to your faith. The first rung of the ladder to get there is faith. And how many people have faith? The Bible says every man is given a measure of faith. All of us have a frontal lobe. In fact, there are some people that say I'm not a spiritual being. You know, if you have a frontal lobe, you're a spiritual being. The question is, who are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? Anyone with a frontal lobe worships. Human beings are creatures of worship. Uh, and the question is, who are they worshiping? What are they worshiping? We all have that first rung, that ladder of faith. But then add to your faith virtue. Virtue is a willingness to do what is better or what is right. Then, and by the way, if you don't have that willingness, there's no use giving people knowledge. Uh, you have to have that willingness first. Then, Peter says, after the willingness, then add to that knowledge. And so that means you're now uh, consciously incompetent. But then, add to that knowledge, temperance. Temperance is actually putting it into action. That is... Uh, abstaining from things that are harmful and using moderation to things that are healthful. Add to your temperance patience. That means endure in stage three. It's going to require some endurance and patience. And then you'll finally get to stage four, which is what the world talks about. Add to patience godliness, which is stage four. So Peter understood these psychological ch stages of change very clearly. But then he said there's two more rungs. After godliness, brotherly kindness, and then after brotherly kindness, charity or love or the actual word that he used is agape. And there's a lot of people saying, well, Christians just need to love each other. We don't need to worry about all the rest. But nobody gets from a first rung to the ladder to the top rung of the ladder without going through all of those steps. And that's why agape is not consistently exemplified is because people haven't gone through the steps that are there to get to agape love. And so whenever we make a decision, we need to base it on truth, and we also need to base it on love for others, uh, as well as loving the Lord with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. Now, in my personal 
uh, decisions. Uh, my first big one, after conversion, I was converted at the age of, of 15 uh, in my own uh, bedroom uh, doing a, um, a correspondence course. I won't go into a lot of my former uh, first 15 years other than to say that although I was raised in a Christian home and had a lot of respect for my parents and for the truths they were giving me, uh, I was uh, pulled in another way, uh, emotionally and otherwise. And, uh, and so uh, by the age of 15, I was kind of the, um, uh, the agent of chaos uh, in our local church school. And many individuals would get booted out of that school, and uh, I was wise enough to avoid the boot out. Uh, but I remember the principal bringing me into the office and saying, the only reason why you're not suspended like all these others is I can't prove at all that you're involved, but I know that you're the head of all of them, and if it wasn't for you, none of them would be suspended. Uh, and I thought, well, he's a little more insightful than I thought, but I kept my mouth shut and didn't say anything more. But uh, a school was fun in that regards, you know, uh, for me. And, uh, but uh, I also had an interest in, in academic things. I guess that was part of the, the, uh, the thing, you know, when you're in a, a school and you get your work done uh, and you can get uh, still good grades, then you need to spend time doing other things. And so I was spending time orchestrating the disruption of a lot of um, fun in my regards, or at least I thought so. But uh, in my academics, I decided that I wanted to graduate from high school a year early, so I needed to take three courses by correspondence, and one of them was Bible Doctrines. So we ordered it from uh, the Home Study International, and you know, Home Study International is a little tougher than uh, regular school. Uh, and uh, so when I started to take this home study course, you know, it wasn't as simple, and I realized I was going to have to really learn these Bible doctrines to get an A. My first test, I didn't get an A. I think I got a B on it, and I thought I'd studied pretty hard, and so I realized I need to learn these Bible doctrines well, and so I had to learn the Bible well, and I had to learn the teachings of the spirit of prophecy, and in so doing, my heart was broken, and I became totally converted there in my bedroom, uh, reading the Bible. And uh, after that time, I entered my senior year uh, in academy, and uh, because I was, uh, had a tendency to have good grades and, and be good in, in science, as people would say, you know, Neil, you really ought to consider being a doctor. And I would say, well, I don't know what I'm going to be, but I know I'm not going to be a doctor. And I would tell them, you know, none of my family is into medicine. I really don't have any interest in it, et cetera. And so I was interested in other things. Prior to my conversion, I was interested in baseball. And that was kind of my big, even though I was good in school, I loved playing baseball. And I always thought I would be a shortstop for some major league team. Uh, but uh, after my conversion, I realized that wasn't uh, going to be possible. And... Uh, so I started looking at other opportunities. And when I finished uh, high school, the big ones I was looking at was being a pastor or an attorney. Uh, three physicians from my local church, the Troy Church there in, in um, the Detroit area, uh, asked me to go to Detroit Renaissance Center and they fed me a meal up there uh, where you could get a beautiful view of the Detroit River and they uh, asked me to seriously consider being a physician. Uh, 
And after they had done that and spent that much time with me, I decided I would put it on the list. And so I uh, started to develop a uh, weighted pro-con list for all three of these professions. And I would interview people in all three who were Christians. You know, some people think it's not really, it's an oxymoron to be a Christian attorney. And uh, so I wanted to interview true Christian attorneys to see if it truly was an oxymoron. And although there are challenges of being a true Christian, it's not necessarily uh, uh, completely uh, that way. And so uh, I also, of course, interviewed pastors, interviewed physicians, and then I would talk about the cons to these Christian physicians, and they were open with me. They said there are going to be several significant aspects that are going to affect, possibly threaten your soul. And they talked about how the, oppor the opportunities uh, with uh, the female gender and of the opposite sex are going to be there throughout your career. And it is going to be, um, that's going to be something that you're going to have to overcome and, and be completely um, in the Lord's will because the, those opportunities will abound and you'll get uh, close to and you'll be able to see a lot of uh, of, of beautiful personality women as well as other women. And so they were upfront about that. They also mentioned the, uh, the temptation in regards to position is going to be a significant threat to the soul. The temptation in regards to money uh, could be a potential threat. You know, uh, the Lord did state that it's, it's actually more difficult for a person of finances to make it into the kingdom than it is a person who doesn't uh, have finances. And so we weighed out all of those things, and I started to weigh out all of the pros and cons of the career choice. And of course, if you weigh it out in all of these areas, a lot of, some of them are much weighted higher, heavier here than there, and uh, you don't know how it's going to come out until you actually go through the entire list. It takes a while to develop the list, and then it takes a time to score it, but you want to do it to the best of your ability and to be objective without the emotional reasoning component there. Uh, and when I did that and I did the final tally, all three were exactly the same score. <laughs> and I realized... Uh, uh, in fact, I was a little upset about that because I had spent quite a bit of time uh, going through this before my first year of college. One of the reasons why I didn't want to change careers, you know, halfway through, I've seen a lot of people waste their time in educational institutions for many years. I didn't want to uh, be in that group, and so I really wanted to know what I was going to do so I could go get into the Lord's work as quickly as possible. And so uh, I recognized my need at that point of prayer and the Lord's intervention. And so I asked for our entire family to set aside a week of prayer. I then uh, asked them to fast with me on a Sabbath. And at the evening time when we were praying in our family worship, the Lord impressed me in a strong way that I was to be a physician. Never had that sensation before or that type of impression, but the Lord's presence was there. And I told my father about it, told my whole family about it as well. Uh, and uh, my father did mention, he says, well, you've been praying, Neil, for a week. You've weighed all of this out. I think you need to understand that that's the will of the Lord. And so I enrolled in pre-med and so uh, got all of those classes organized. And then I had confirmation a few weeks later. Uh, one of you was actually in that calculus class with me. 
uh, that's here today, uh, one of the physicians, but uh, we, I, took a cal I had taken algebra and geometry in high school, but uh, I had taken one of those other correspondence courses was algebra two. I had finished that in two and a half weeks, and uh, that had been well over a year earlier. And uh, when you do something that quick, it doesn't get consolidated. You know, it just stays in working memory, uh, if you know some things about memory. And so uh, I didn't really remember any of that Algebra two, And uh, I remember uh, Dr. Hatcher would start out at one end of the board and go to the other. And the bell would ring just as he was doing the final equation, and the board was uh, probably about half as big, maybe a little more than half the size of this, uh, of this room here. I'm getting confirmation from the individual who took calculus with me. And uh, a couple of days before the test, he says, remember now, uh, on this particular day, I think it was Friday, is your first test. I thought, remember, I never even heard that. I had been studying chemistry in my other classes, and uh, then the, uh, I went home that night and I thought, well, I've got one trump card. My father's an, uh, an engineer. So I called him up and told him about these equations and the problems that were there and how I didn't understand it at all. He says, son, it's been many years since I've taken calculus, number one, but he says, number two, I never had calculus anywhere close to how you're being taught it. And he says, you're on your own. <laughs> and so uh, I hung the phone up and a little discouraged. And then I did send a, a prayer up, Lord, if you want me to be a physician, you know that it requires uh, some semblance of grades. And uh, I don't understand any of this. Please grant me some understanding. And so I studied the material, but still felt clueless. And when I entered into the test, I felt as clueless as ever at the end of the test and just didn't uh, feel uh, like things had gone well. And uh, the next Monday, Dr. Hatcher put up the scores. Average was 64%, lowest 18%. Highest, and he says this, does, this only happens every several years. Uh, but he said it hasn't happened for quite a while, but somebody got 100%, and I remember everyone hissing at that point in the room. And I didn't really want to pick up my test to see what it was, but I knew eventually I had to, and I picked it up, and there it was, 100%. It turned out my angel knew calculus very well. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure helped me with that test. And, uh, and after that, that was the confirmation. I never looked back. It was clear the Lord wanted me to go into this. And uh, uh, it is clear that it was the career choice for him uh, that would best uh, serve him. In regards to my marriage, there were uh, some things that, uh, that happened in our dating relationship. I won't go into all the details. I normally go into it because it can be a teaching tool. Uh, but uh, there was an individual, in fact, I should say my freshman year of college in freshman composition, I wrote out a paper on the girl that Neil Nedley will marry. I didn't have anyone in particular in mind. I wasn't dating anyone at that time. And I put out the things that she would have to have and then things that she should have the majority of. And then another list of, if she had any of these, it would be nice. Uh, and uh, I took that 
home and just uh, for curiosity's sake uh, showed it to my parents and they were commenting on it and smiling and that sort of thing. And of course my sisters wanted to see what they were talking about and so they got a hold of it. My sisters are older than me. And they read that and they shook their head and with scorn looked at me and said, you're never going to get married, Neil. And I said, why do you say that? And it says, there's no girl in the universe that is going to uh, match up to this. I said, well, that's all right. Oh, I guess I won't get married. And so, uh, but the amazing thing is that there was a girl that I was uh, dating later on. It was in medical school. A girl that my father told me that I should get to know more. I had met her in my home church. And because of my respect for him, I did try to uh, get to know her and, uh, by reading the book of Acts together and also studying Acts of the Apostles. We'd go to a park in a public place. And uh, I really appreciated her in many respects, and uh, actually so much so that I asked her to come to Loma Linda to do her physical therapy when I was in medical school. She was um, going to do physical therapy at Andrews, but Andrews hadn't started their program yet. Uh, and so she came to Loma Linda. We were dating for over a, a year plus. And on a 13-hour road uh, highway trip back from our former pastors, who was Jan Doward in Northern California on a weekend going back, uh, Erica started asking me some more serious questions, and I started to deflect them. Uh, really in regards to the future, etc. And I told her I was very happy with the way things were, and she gently then broke up with me on that uh, trip back. And uh, a, a guy who had been dating a lot of girls, I used to date in Andrews, I used to date a different girl every weekend just to get to know people, but never wanted to be serious. One of the reasons why my father was wise enough to tell me that if you get married, Neil, you're announcing your independence and you are no longer uh, going to be supported in any way, form, or fashion from, you know, us uh, here as parents. And so uh, I think he knew some of my strong pulls in that regard, and so that really helped. I didn't want to get close to anybody uh, at that point because education was first. But uh, here, uh, after analyzing this, I actually, uh, there was another classmate of ours in medical school. Rodney Van Pelt was there. The professors, or the, some of the uh, people from the dean's office lined me up with him the second year to try to help him pass. He was having some difficulties. And uh, so we studied together, and his grades improved a lot. But in our junior year, uh, we hadn't seen each other in clinicals, and he started asking me about Erica, and I told her we had broken up. And he says, well, um, how about your interests? Are your interests um, pretty much the same? I said, oh, yeah. Have you ever had any arguments with her? I said, actually, no. Said even in breaking up, was there any kind of emotional? Dis I said no. There wasn't. Uh, there was no argument or anything like that. She just kind of told me that, you know, it, it wasn't used continuing the relationship when I wasn't willing to go forward. And uh, well, what about spiritual things? And so he went over all of these lists, and I said, Yeah, it's there. Are you attracted to her? Yeah, absolutely, I am. How about? Um, uh, you know, music. How about he went into all of these different areas. Of course, his mother wrote, you know, the complete marriage, complete courtship, and those type of books. <laughs> and uh, and so he was, uh, I think, quoting a lot from her. And then he talked about his own marriage. He had been married there uh, for a little over a year. And finally, uh, he said, "Neil, what's wrong with you?" 
And I said, what do you mean? And he says, you know, she's got everything there. What is wrong with you? And so I re remember that. And then I, re for the first time in four years, or five, well, it would have been five or six years now, I got out this freshman composition piece. And there it was. She had met all of the necessary, all of the majority, and a majority of the wants. <laughs> And uh, so uh, here the decision was right in front of me, but I couldn't see it. And since, of course, getting married to her, I fortunately did see it after that and uh, called her up and asked her to come. I had left Loma Linda at that point. I went to L.A. for the OBGYN to get out of the Loma Linda scene. But I uh, called her up to go to church with me uh, there, and she was fortunately uh, willing to do so. And we ended up going to the same Jan Doward's place and looking over the Pacific Ocean. I asked her to marry me. But since that time, our love has grown tremendously. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I looked at her and said, you know, after the first year, I thought it couldn't get any better. And after the second year, I couldn't, you know, imagine it getting any better. But, uh, you know, can this continue to get better? I mean, this is, we have a wonderful marriage. The Lord has led in every way uh, possible. And uh, uh, going the Lord's route was certainly a wonderful well, plus. Residency. Went through the same pro and con list. I've narrowed it down to internal medicine. And in this instance, the Lord overruled the pro-con list with Charlotte, North Carolina, number one, Kettering, number two. And Charlotte was a non-SDA program, but very intensely involved in procedural aspects and highly academic. And uh, they reserved it for normally those in the top 10% of the class. And so uh, I thought I had a decent chance of getting in. And I remember it's the first thing that I had tried for with all of my heart and soul to get into a program, and I didn't get in. And I remember even calling up the residency director the next day and saying, what happened? I mean, you know, am I, is there still a possibility? I mean, did you overlook anything? And, and, but the Lord overruled that because he wanted me at Kettering. And at Kettering, I was able to learn and do things on the health side of things and the preventive medicine side of things, especially with Dr. DeRose there. He was there the third year when I was there the first year. That would have never occurred otherwise. And it was clear that Charlotte would have been a big mistake Fourth is practice. We weighed the pro-con list out in regards to multiple places. And Eric and I were both severely emotionally disappointed when the top pro-con score came out to Ardmore, Oklahoma. We didn't want to go to Ardmore, Oklahoma. It was not anywhere uh, in our emotional plans to do so. But yet, when we went through things objectively, it was clear that's where we should be. The Lord didn't overrule at that point, and it's, and it's very clear that the Lord wanted us there, and I could go into the many reasons why that's the case. Uh, then we would get calls from Ardmore. I remember one of the calls uh, was from an evangelist, a uh, famous Adventist evangelist who asked me to give up my practice, and he would train me to be an evangelist. Uh, and uh, it was actually a, f a pastor friend of mine who showed me this quote. I've been surprised at being asked by physicians if I did not think it would be more pleasing to God for them to give up their medical practice and enter the ministry. I'm prepared to answer such an inquirer. If you are a Christian, she means that in every sense of the term, and a what type of physician? Competent physician, you are qualified to do tenfold more good as a missionary for God than if you were to go forth merely as a preacher of the word. And so I stayed in medicine and stayed in medical evangelism. And, and that's where she also says, I would advise young men and young women to give heed to this matter. And she talked about the need for more women physicians. 
Well, I got a call to go to um, Weimar. It was, I think, in March uh, when Doug Batchelor called me when I was at the Vegetarian Nutrition Conference in Loma Linda and talked about amazing facts, merging with Weimar as the possibility and to uh, go there. And uh, I told him that we would weigh it out and, and consider it. And in considering this, whenever you're considering a decision, I think it's very important to look at three main attributes. The one is on personal soul salvation. If we don't have an active saving relationship with the Lord God, we're not going to be near as effective a medical evangelist. And there's going to be threats to that wherever you go, but where are the threats going to be most significant? Where are the benefits going to be the most significant? And how can we weigh that out? You know, and, uh, and of course, the personal soul salvation would also include salvation of the spouse when you are a team and if you're one. And so you can rate those independently and combine them. Uh, but that was uh, also there. Includes time for personal devotions. Where are you going to have more devotional time? Where are you going to have more spiritual mentorship time? Where are you going to have opportunities for direct teaching of others in spiritual things? If we're not feeding others, uh, it's hard for us to continue to be fed. And so uh, personal soul salvation, and of course, when we weighed that out, there were multiple categories, and some of them were far different in going to Weimar versus staying in Oklahoma. In fact, some of the threats on our personal soul salvation would be greater in going to Weimar in some of those things uh, when we looked at it. And, uh, and I won't go into all of the details on that. Uh, that would require a whole other uh, way of analyzing it. Uh, and then another area is salvation of each immediate family member. We looked at every one of our immediate family members independently, the best we could tell in regards to the move, what it would do for their relationship with God, how it would threaten them, how it would help them to grow, uh, how they could uh, uh, better take hold of the teachings of their parents. And interestingly, those were also pretty separate. Our younger two, it turned out, were scored significantly higher by staying in Oklahoma. Uh, and the older two actually turned out to be somewhat better by uh, taking the move to Weimar. And so that's why you go a weighted pro-con list. One of the advantages of doing this as well is when we came back to Oklahoma after the whole decision was made, people thought we had made a huge mistake and they would say, well, what about this and what about that? And they would think of all of the negatives in moving to Weimar, but you know, we were able to carefully tell them every one of those things that you have mentioned, we weighed out and we already uh, took it uh, and analyzed that out. But there's also other aspects to the decision. Salvation of others, very important. And of course you can rate it one third, one third, one third. You can score it other ways. In, in our instance, I think we rated this about 20% and this about uh, we're tied with 40%, 40% on the salvation of others. But salvation of those in the church and your influence in the uh, church, and not just um, those who you're teaching in the church, but including educating others to effectively win souls, and also in the world. Where can you have the greatest influence for good in the world, and how can you tailor your practice and what you're doing more for the Lord's cause? Well, this spent a significant amount of time. Fortunately, I was at the Arizona camp meeting when I was weighing this out in June. 
it took us that long to be able to compile the information and weigh this out. And uh, most of the time at camp meetings, I'm speaking three different places, our, our morning, afternoon, and evening. And so, and then there's a lot of t um, time in between. You know, I kind of, um, it's one of the things about, I guess, being a medical missionary that comes forward. It's not because of, of who I am, but I've uh, often teased the pastors who are at camp meetings saying, as soon as you're done with the talk, you're done. As soon as I'm done with the talk, look what happens. And there's a group of 50 or 60 people that come up, and I'm taking one question at a time, one by one. And so those questions are often more than the entire talk as you do that. And so the, the camp meeting can be fully uh, gone forward. I mean, can, uh, can be fully consuming. But at this time, it was only two hours at the uh, uh, camp that I was there, and the rest of the time could be de dedicated to this. And after I waited out with Eric on the phone doing all of those things, it came out completely even. Oklahoma versus California. In fact, it was statistically, I shouldn't say completely, statistically there was, there was no significant difference. One way of looking at it was higher the other way. In regards to your own children, what were the conditions chosen by the infinite father for his son? A secluded home in the Galilean hills, a household sustained by honest, self-respecting labor, a life of what? Simplicity. One of the reasons why physicians, kids don't often do well. Daily conflict with difficulty and hardship. He chose that for his own son. Self-sacrifice, economy, and patient gladsome service. The hour of study at his mother's side with the open scroll of scripture. We think somehow that he was studying at eight hours a day. It was just one hour of study that was there, but a very important aspect. And that economic influence, the quiet of dawn or twilight in the green valley, the holy ministries of nature, the study of creation and providence, the soul's communion with God. These were the conditions and opportunities of the early life of Jesus. So would the great majority of the best and noblest men of all ages. And so what would produce that best environment was one of the things that were weighed out. Was weighed out. I think my time might... How much more time do I have? Uh, uh, couple of minutes. Okay. To go or not to go. I may not finish it, but if, I'm, if I don't, that's okay. Uh, after it was completely tied out, I put this into the... Uh, CD-ROM, the Ellen White CD-ROM, to go or not to go. Just typed it in. And it was kind of interesting what came up. Uh, one of the things that came up in this was patriarchs and prophets. It was no light test that was thus brought upon Abraham, no small sacrifice that was required of him. There were strong ties to bind him to his country, his kindred, and his home. And I should mention in our case this resonated very well. We have uh, my Erica's parents living next door a half mile down, and we have her brother and his kids living a quarter mile down the other side, and we have my mother on our same property, and so we have uh, the entire family there, beautiful secluded place to raise uh, the kids. No strong ties to bind him to his country. There were strong ties to bind him to his country, his kindred, his home. But he did not hesitate to obey the call. He had no question to ask concerning the land of promise, whether the soil was fertile and the climate healthful, whether the country afforded agreeable surroundings and would afford opportunities for amassing wealth. He didn't ask those questions. In fact, that's what the Oklahoma people did when I was considering this. They said, have you considered California's four seasons? I said, what are the four seasons? And they said, fires, earthquakes, floods, and riots. <laughs> So uh, 
he didn't ask those type of questions. God has spoken and his servant must obey. The happiest place on earth for him was the place where God would what? Have him to be. And, you know, that's the amazing thing. When you're, when you're going against your own emotions and you go where the will of the Lord is, it seems like you're sacrificing some sort of pleasure somewhere. But in reality, because we have all these fortune teller errors, we're actually making the choice where we're going to be the happiest if we go where the Lord wants us to be. Many are still tested, as was Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens. In fact, that's what, that was one of the, the things that I was thinking about. When I read that first paragraph, I should mention, well, Abraham got the direct voice of the Lord. Uh, and I haven't heard the direct voice of the Lord. In fact, I prayed for it earnestly that week in Arizona. I prayed to hear the Lord's voice so that I would know. Many are still tested with Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, but he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. They may be required to abandon a career that promises wealth and honor, to leave congenial and profitable associations, and separate from kindred, to enter upon what appears to be only a path of self-denial, hardship, and sacrifice. God has a work for them to do, but a life of ease and the influence of friends and kindred would hinder the development of the very traits essential for its accomplishment. He calls them away from human influences and aid and leads them to feel the need of his help and to depend upon him alone that he may reveal himself to them. She goes on, this is the last paragraph of that section in Patriarchs and Prophets. Who is ready at the call of providence to renounce cherished plans and familiar associations? Who will accept new duties and enter untried fields doing God's work with firm and willing heart for Christ's sake, counting his losses gain? He who will do this has the faith of Abraham and will share with him that far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory with which the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. If I have uh, two more minutes, I'll do one more statement. If not, I can end at this point. Uh, okay. Uh, well, it's Dr. Lawrence that's the timekeeper there, so I have to, he's the only one that counts in that question. Uh, then as I plugged in this phrase, I got the direct quote from this statement here. The action of the Foreign Mission Board calling for Ellen White to go to Australia carried a clause that left the final decision with her. That is, the request was predicated on the light she may have in the matter and her own judgment. As the summer wore on, how she sought the Lord for light, but she received none, either to go or not to go. I must admit, I was a little more comforted at that point because I was praying earnestly for the Lord's voice in this matter because it was such a complex issue to weigh all of those things out. But here's the prophet of the Lord, you know, and I'm not a prophet nor a son of the prophet. But here's the prophet of the Lord praying earnestly for the Lord's will to be made manifest and she doesn't receive any direct communication from him to go or not to go. And she didn't want to go. It's clear when, she, when you read the background of it, she had just bought a place on Lake Michigan, a beautiful place to be able to, in seclusion, write uh, the materials the Lord had put on her heart. She had written some books, but she hadn't completed a whole lot of them yet. And so she had just actually purchased that property, got it for a good price, and was ready to move there, and then she gets the call to go to Australia. 
This morning, my mind is anxious and troubled in regard to my duty. Can it be the will of God that I go to Australia? This involves a great deal with me. I have not special light to leave America for this far-off country. Nevertheless, if I knew it was the voice of God, I would go. But I cannot understand this matter. And that's where I was at. I was reading these quotes, by the way, when I was fasting. I ended, uh, you know, after things came out tied, I then went into prayer and fasting. And I fasted on the last Sabbath there in Arizona. Nonetheless, she decided to go. As she later wrote of it, she had adopted the practice of responding to the request in the general conference unless she had special light to the contrary. Now, one of my good friends, when I told him about this, mentioned, but she didn't get the call from the general conference. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that's certainly true. It isn't. But there are, there are some principles uh, that we can uh, have uh, in this matter. Well, uh, I, know, uh, our, I know he's been stretching it already. I do have a, I'm not going to ask you anymore. I do have some more slides. I'm not going to get to the, to the end of this story. There is an end to it. Uh, but uh, how should we do this? I guess if, uh, if you come to my seminar, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, should I? Because <laughs> there are a lot of other good seminars too. Uh, but uh, uh, you, can all, you can get the tape of the seminar. How's that? So you can get the tape of the seminar and hear the, uh, the five to ten minutes of conclusion of this matter on how to know the will of the Lord and to follow it. But uh, maybe I'll end with just, I'm going to, here we go. I can, I can end with this. Principles of decision making. First principle, obtain peak mental performance. In other words, get on the lifestyle that's going to be conducive to you making a good decision. And also part of that peak mental performance Get rid of that emotional reasoning, those distorted thoughts, um, you know, uh, and uh, get on the program where your mind can be clear to communicate with God. Secondly, ask the Lord for wisdom when you're weighing this out. The Lord has given us a frontal lobe for a good reason. A lot of people, they, they just kind of cancel their frontal lobe out and go by this fleece type stuff, you know. And when you put out a fleece, uh, Gideon was never commended for that. It was actually a lack of faith that produced that, those fleece. And so these fleece-type things can be, uh, can be almost canceling out the frontal lobe that the Lord has given you to weigh things out. And so ask the Lord for wisdom when you're going through this. Take time to analyze each point in the decision. Develop a weighed scoring system. It takes time, but it, you certainly won't be jumping to a conclusion that way. And by the way, in regards to any decision, I think the decision that the Lord has placed on many of our hearts here in regards to the current affairs is what to do with our money. You know, we need to go through the same process in regards to how the Lord would deal with our money. If we're delaying that decision, we're going to end up making the wrong decision. And we need to go through this. You know, the Lord is stirring things up so that we go through this careful analysis on what to do with even our own finances. Analyze each point, how it's going to affect your personal soul salvation, the salvation of your family, the salvation of others. Number four, look for confirmation. After you make that decision, in each instance, confirmation had been obtained with every major decision that I had made. And then after you get that confirm confirmation, don't look back. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you 
that you have given us all frontal lobes to be able to choose our own destiny and to have that power of choice. But even though you've given us a brain that's capable of making complex decisions, we know that we are finite and you are infinite. And we ask for your help, not only in the daily decisions of life, but now is at the time when this world is in consternation. Lord, I'm sensing that, the, that you may be calling virtually everyone in this room to a different path than what they're on now. And so, Lord, as we weigh these decisions out, we pray for your wisdom. We pray that we will not succumb to emotional reasoning. And we thank you that the happiest place that we can be is the place where you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.